So, the title of today's sermon is The Conservative Reformation and Its Consequences. Um, While this may sound like the first line of Ted Kaczynski's manifesto, it is not. Instead, it is the title of a book written in the 19th century, which contended for that Martin Luther's Reformation was trying to conserve something rather than overthrow it. We should see it less like a signing of the Declaration of Independence and more like a, um, a uh, HR, like uh, how can the workplace improve type situation. And why do I say that? Because Jesus left us everything we need to be a Christian church. And it looked a lot like what we do today. Most of the Gospel of John, say, was basically this. I'm going to die, rise again for your sins, and I won't be here forever to answer all of your questions. You have to learn to just trust my word. Trust what I've already said. And then I'll ascend into heaven And I'll be with you in certain ways, but I'm going to leave behind certain men to help lead you like I did. And so he leaves us his word and his sacraments. He says, every time you preach, listen to, read my word, I'll be there. Every time you baptize someone, every time you remember your baptism, every time you celebrate the feast, the supper of the Lamb, I'll be there. And even even to the point that um, really, it's almost like all you need is your baptism. For Martin Luther writes in his large catechism, he says, the Christian life is baptism. Every morning, you remember, I am baptized. I am God's child. I am Jesus' little brother or sister. My sins are forgiven. I have been washed clean. And that's all you need. And have faith in that promise. Your sins are forgiven. Unfortunately, though, well, first... This is what the Christian's life looked like in the first 700 years of the Christian church. Of course, you'd go to the divine service on Sunday. They would have a a service of the word where you would hear the reading of the scriptures. You would pray. You would learn through a sermon. The pastor would explain the readings for the day. And then he would say, okay, now everyone that's still a catechumen or a confirmand or if a visitor, uh, here's your blessing. And then they would depart. And everyone who is a uh, confirmed, catechized, uh, mature Christian would stay behind. They would do a service of the sacrament. And everyone would commune with one another and with Jesus. 
And once again, your baptism was enough. You knew you were baptized. Your sins were forgiven. But around the 7th century, oh, and they continued doing this for hundreds of years. And they were called the One Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. One meaning undivided. Holy meaning set apart from the world. Catholic meaning they all agree in their teaching. And apostolic meaning they continued on in the teaching of the apostles. And then they invented this thing called a bishop or an overseer. And it was simply a pastor as the church got bigger and bigger. It was simply a pastor who was assigned over a city, a large city or a large area. So, for example, St. John was over all of Asia Minor. St. Peter would just look over Rome. James would look over Jerusalem. This was not a position of authority or uh, lording or princedom or kingdom. No, for Jesus said, if you want to be great in my kingdom, then you must become a servant. You must become lowly because God raises up and he casts down the proud. Unfortunately, as the church got bigger and as the church began to take on the role of like both the civil realm and the church world and the home, they kept saying, man, telling people to return to their baptisms and trust in the forgiveness of sins, that's not helping us run a country. And so something that was usually only reserved for people that had very guilty consciences on specific sins, private confession and absolution, they began a rigmarole where confession and absolution replaced remembering and returning to your baptism for the remission of sins. And one was expected to confess all of their sins, even ones that they didn't know And this is especially what tortured Martin Luther. And sadly, I think they do it now, but back in the day, they wouldn't say, trust me as your priest. You are forgiven by the words of Jesus Christ. Instead, they would say, do penance. And you'd go and do something. And I hope to God that these people felt assurance of the forgiveness of sins. This all began to change in the 7th century or so, when in the Western world, in Western Europe, it became cool to have a king. And so, the Bishop of Rome, who then was called Gregory Gregory I would later be called Gregory the Great. He decided the church should have a king too. And so he invented the papacy. This role, the pope, would not become what we call infallible until the year 1870, which is after the American Civil War. 
Because for the first thousand years or so of the church, since Gregory, they didn't need infallibility of the Pope. You would simply burn at the stake anyone that disagreed. And also, if you've ever met a Polish Catholic, they are not under the Pope because they disagreed with this infallibility thing in 1870. They're doing their own thing. It's pretty cool. And so after 600 years of this office called bishop, made by man, which was supposed to be a humble office that you didn't want to do because it was so busy and burdensome, it was transformed into a kingship with princes and dukes under them. Pope, archbishop, bishop, cardinal. The 12 bishops of Christendom, so think just the major cities, modeled after the 12 disciples, Jerusalem, Rome, Antioch, etc. Once this was a council of mutual help, discussion, deciding what should we do, it was now disrupted by the Bishop of Rome. Gregory I demanded that he be bowed down to as an authority higher than others. His reasoning? A poor interpretation of Matthew chapter 16. But funny enough, this grab for power would have been expected by, say, the Apostle Peter before he had the Holy Spirit. One of those times where Peter says the wrong thing. What if, Lord Jesus, I was Lord over all the other disciples? What if I was greatest? Because you keep talking to me in private. And then Jesus has to say, Peter, I'm not talking to you in private a lot because you're so great, but because you're messing up over and over again, and I have to correct you. I have to keep a close watch on you. And so, no, Peter, you must become least of all like a child, a servant, not even sitting at the table in the lowest place. You need to be like a servant bussing tables if you want to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so, with the church in this state in the 7th century, with a new king who ruled over all the other bishops, under the great weight of bound consciences, feeling unforgiven for their sin, acting out against the word of God, this one holy apostolic Catholic church began to split. First went the Eastern Orthodox Church. They could not agree that the Bishop of Rome was Lord over them, and so half of Christendom left. Then, in Moravia, the Hussites left, who believed that the word of God should be in the heart of one that reads it. You should hear it in the language your mom says, I love you in. They leave and they're burned at the stake. The Wycliffians in England, John Wycliffe, also contends for the same thing. Unfortunately, They strangle him and then burn him alive. And so finally, 
under the oppressive cruel rod of this bishop of Rome, who is often acting in place of and against Jesus Christ and his word, people began to feel discouraged. Am I forgiven? Am I going to heaven? I really want to. I think I'm an okay guy. I love Jesus. I love looking at the pictures of him on the wall. I can't read. I can't understand Latin. But when I see him in the nativity on the church wall, I'm filled with joy. When I see his death on the church wall in a fresco, I'm brought to weep at the death of my Savior. And then I see in another fresco him risen from the dead. I love this man who died for me. He did it for me. Instead, they were asked to confess all of their sins, even ones they did not understand. They began to charge for pieces of paper called indulgences. These would guarantee forgiveness, yes, but not of sins, but time out of a place called purgatory. A concept made up whole cloth. Don't believe me? Then why does Eastern Orthodoxy not teach it? Which began at the same time, but has never taught this purgatory concept from the same source. And finally, what Martin Luther had great difficulty with in his 95 Theses was something called the Treasury of Merit, or the King Pope had a vault, so to speak, of grace that had been earned by himself in prayer, Jesus's death on the cross, the works of the saints, and they would all be in this vault. And if you paid enough, donated enough, or asked kindly enough, or, you know, gave that land to the church, then he would give you some grace out of the treasury of merit. And so my favorite of the 95 Theses was written, why doesn't the Pope, out of the kindness of his heart, open up the vault, treasury of merit, and give everyone God's grace just because he's a nice guy. Who knows? Communion, also, by the way, we experienced this yesterday. We went to a Roman Catholic wedding. Communion was given only as the host. There was no blood. Even though Jesus says, take, eat, this is my body, take, drink, this is my blood, for the forgiveness of your sins. It's called communing in one kind. And the reformers and the people actually fought wars over the ability and right for you to take communion both in the body and the blood. So take advantage of it. You are blessed. The gospel of Jesus, let alone the full word of God, was no longer preached. It was no longer taught as Christ commands. It was done in a language no one could understand. 
And so all of these treasures, God's word, the sacrament, baptism, they were hidden as though buried in a field. Treasure buried. Treasure that is for you, meant for you, has your name on it. Given for you, was hidden. And so by the time 1517 came around, Martin Luther was living alongside fellow brothers and sisters in Christ under almost 700 years of evil. What God calls evil, which is bad shepherds over his people. People were trapped under pharisaical rules made up by power-hungry men. The gospel, the forgiveness of sins, grace, the word of God, they were no longer free gifts, treasure for you. When people felt their conscience burdened, when they felt, I think I did the wrong thing, they were pointed to the law of God, the demands of God, instead of his gospel, which says, you are forgiven. Instead, they were pointed to do this, do more. It's all on you. Because the men that Jesus left behind to give his word, to give his sacraments, weren't doing their jobs anymore. They weren't giving Christ's forgiveness to his people who deserved it. But I asked myself, was he fighting the church? Or was he, Martin Luther, trying to fight what we all try to fight? The evil desires of our own hearts, the evil desires of the world, the devil, what we trap ourselves into when we try to live under the guilt of the law. Do you feel like you've ever made church attendance a requirement in your house? Have you ever made it a box to check for yourself that kind of makes you feel a little less guilty? Know that instead it is God serving you and he delights to serve you. Have you ever felt like you have made your baptism, the baptism of your child, the baptism of your grandchild, into a magic spell, a get-out-of-jail-free card. Remember that it is a gift for you. Jesus Christ died and rose again, and in the drowning and raising up out of this water, you are forgiven. It is a gift. There's nothing to feel guilty about. Have you ever made yourself to feel like communion is an entitlement or a participation trophy sticker for yourselves. Know instead that it is Jesus's gift to you, the forgiveness of your sins bodily, for you to not only know but feel, to alleviate your guilty conscience. Therefore, Luther carried the torch of Christ's gospel message to you, by translating these words to the language of the people. He saved us not only from a system that was oppressive and difficult, 
but our own selves, our old sinful Adam and Eve, who hourly condemns your image of God, who hourly tries to excuse you of your sin instead of trusting in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. And that's why when Luther read these words in Romans chapter 3, they were so freeing to those who heard them. And so you've already heard these words from Nate, but here are them again in a more simple way. Romans chapter 3. The law, or God's demands of us, applies to those to whom it was given. You, me. Its purpose is to keep people from making excuses for their actions, their thoughts, and their deeds. To show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can be made right with God by doing what God demands of us. It simply shows us how we've messed up. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of his law or demands, as he promised long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. Everyone has sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glorious standards, yes. But God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did through Christ Jesus this freeing of us from the penalty of our sins. God presented Jesus as sacrifice for your sins. You are made right with God simply when you believe that Jesus sacrificed his life on the cross, shedding his blood for you. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those of old who sinned because he was looking forward in time to his son dying on the cross and rising again. And God did this to demonstrate that he is righteous, he is just, he is good. For he himself is always fair, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus Christ's sacrifice. And so can we boast that we have done anything acceptable by God? No, because this isn't based on obeying God's rules, it is based on your faith. We are made right with God through faith and not by obeying God's laws. This is called justification. You have been justified, declared, made righteous by God, by your faith alone, through God's grace alone, out of his kindness, by Christ Jesus' death and resurrection alone. Jesus says in his Gospel of John, You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They, of course, replied and said, What are you talking about? We've never been slaves. 
And Jesus replies, I tell you the truth, I'm not lying to you. Everyone who sins becomes a slave to their sin. When you give in to the desires of your heart, all of a sudden, you are a slave to those things. You need to rule over them. And a slave is not a part of the family and the household, no. But a son or a daughter is. So he says, when the son sets you free, you are truly free. Become a son or a daughter of God. You become a son or daughter of God when you are baptized. And so choose to live as a son. Live as a daughter because you are a son or a daughter of God. You are God's prince or princess. Read his gospel with your family. Pray with your family. Become less busy. Choose it. Choose to make time for God in your house, for you are a son or daughter in his house. God love you and God bless you. Amen.